Thanks for tuning in. I'm Gillian Knight, artist and creator of Art Fictions. My guest artist today is the figurative painter Nicola Beerling, and we're going to talk about dark humour, executions, internal panic, male strippers, 18th century working class fabrics, Goya being God, cruelty, Stasi prison, cave people, hazardous shitholes, bum cracks, lungs filling with blood, penis simulators, pictures popping up behind your eyes, boring objects, unaffordable medical care, apprenticeships, being trapped, funny voices, hot sexy breeding age, slogans of false hope, bags of human waste, and the tiny details that make up a life. Welcome to Art Fictions, Nicola Beerling. Julian, thank you so much. It's such an honour to be here. I've listened to some of the other episodes and you've interviewed so many amazing people. Yeah, no pressure. For our discussion today, you've chosen the book of short stories, Pastoralia. Pastoralia, is that how you say it? In my head, I say Pastoralia, but I don't know. Like Australia, Pastoralia. Uh, Written by George Saunders and published by Riverhead Books in the year 2000. We're going to focus on the novella within the book, also titled Pastoralia, as well as Sea Oak. But they are just two of the six stories which are snapshots of contemporary American existence delivered in a deadpan, razor-sharp tone and shrouded with dark humour. Nicola, why did you choose this book? Partly because um, I'm one of those people that, um, or perhaps I'm the only person who can read a book. I think this book is amazing. It's one of the best books I've ever read. And then two weeks later, I can't remember the title, the author... That's not a bad thing. I do that all the time. Do you? And I thought it was some sort of brain problem I've had. <laughs> and, then, and then I read a writer who did exactly the same thing because she said, I can't store all those books in my head when I'm doing my work. Okay. And I thought, hey, I'm in good company. But when I read this book, which is, I think, about 10 years ago, it stayed with me. And when you asked me to choose a book, this sort of presented itself as an obvious choice. And also, when I first read it, somebody recommended it to me by saying, you've got to read this book. It reminded me of your work. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, instantly hackles go up, you know, bristle, you think, what do you mean it reminded me of work? And, and then I did read it, and I thought, this is amazing. Absolutely. It is very connected to your work. But what is it about the book that you feel, this is my comfort zone of the way I think or or the way I observe the world or something I can connect with about the way the world might be observed? Well, lots of things. I mean, obviously the dark humour and a lot of the characters in the stories, you know, they go along thinking they're heroes in their own world, but they so aren't. They quite often have bleak lives and... They're imagining everything is great. When I read it this time, I noticed in the beginning there were always amazing reviews from when it first came out, and some of these, I thought, they really pinned down what's amazing about it. So Face magazine said, expertly crafted, Pastoralia is that rare beast, social satire that lacks trite conclusions and is actually funny. And... Another magazine reviewed it as remarkable, packed with exquisite oblique tales of American loners and outcasts, all written in Saunders' surreal, damaged prose, deranged and moving in equal doses. It will haunt you long after you put the book down. Mm. And I thought, yeah, (laughs) that's perfect. Yeah, yeah. It has haunted me. 
what resonates with me about the book that umbrellas is of course its title pastoralia so i thought of it like pastoral like pastoral care and that sort of rural idealism and and also animalia again an all-encompassing reference to every animal or worms insects all that sort of stuff and in one of the reviews uh, somebody referred to George Saunders as a master of distilling the disorders of our time into fiction so he's a writer set apart from the world about which he's writing and in fact I'm going to seem really clever but I haven't read it (laughs) I do have his book, A Swim in a Pond in the Rain. So it's basically stories from Chekhov, Turgenev, Tolstoy, Gogol. And and then he offers his interpretations of them. And he's got every right to do that because he is a university professor. And he refers to Tolstoy in this book of seeking the truth in two ways, as a fiction writer and as a moral preacher. And I was thinking about that with this title of Pastoralia and I was thinking about and and this really relates to your paintings as well is once you start talking about society how do you do it when you're a part of it because you don't want to not be a part of it but how do you do it without being sort of patronizing or you know and I and I thought throughout he was very sympathetic but also it's quite I mean, when I reread it this time, I thought it is actually quite cruel in mm. places. Like, it's very sharp. It's funny, I mean, you've analysed it way more than I have, because <laughs> I assume Pastoralia was just... So the first story is set in this kind of slowly dying outdoor theme park, but I assumed the title was the name of the theme park. Oh, OK. But yeah. that was... Probably is. That yeah. is just my yeah. interpretation, because it isn't actually explained anywhere. So let, let's talk then about the story, Pastoralia. So I didn't read all of the stories for a reason of complete confusion because I had to listen to Audible on my Kindle. So I couldn't even track where I was up to. But um, George Saunders reads the book. And oh, nice. it was really hard to get used to because his voice is like a character from something like Family Guy. And it starts off, you think, and I thought, I'm, I'm going to hate this. So is he not put, he's not putting on voices, I do think. I don't know, but he also puts on voices, and now I can't unhear those voices. Yeah. At some point, I'm hoping that you'll give us a reader quote, but I kind of want it in, like... I'm not doing an American accent, <laughs> but that's where you're going. Peter or Chris or something from uh, Family Guy, but yeah, let's not do that. So, um, as you say, the title story, Pastoralia, the two people, the narrator, and, and this narrator, I'm always thinking is George Saunders. So he, in a funny way, he's kind of taking responsibility, I guess, for, for what he's writing about. And uh, they live and work in an amusement park, Diorama enacting the early life of human cave dwellers, eating roast goat and pretending to catch flying bugs in their mouths. <laughs> The narrator keeps in touch with his wife via a fax machine, especially about his desperately ill son, Nelson, which is completely not funny. It's so awful because they can barely afford his medical care. The sort of internal panic that you feel really... And he's not even allowed to answer a fax machine. It's sort of officially... Yeah. It's not not part of the act. Yeah. Thinking of that setting of the cave people, have we improved any... I mean, it talks a lot about... 
his daily routine that he has to go and pick up their bags of human waste and collect them and put them in the big bag of human waste and and then the goat gets delivered through the big slot sometimes it doesn't sometimes there's a small slot with a there's a note complaining about their performance and it I hadn't thought of this before but it reminded me actually of going to the Stasi prison just outside Berlin mm. um, last year this kind of big brother, you're, you're being watched all the time and analysed, and these little slots where people are feeding you or not feeding you, everything is controlled and you have no power. God, that must have been extraordinary. Oh, it was the bleakest place ever. Yeah. And really terrifying, because it was in use until reasonably modern times. So the, the narrator in Pastoralia is always reporting on Janet's performance. Mm. You know, any issues to report? And he says, no, that's fine, even though she's done terrible things. But it's like, you know, the East German system of neighbour reporting on neighbour or family members reporting on each other. Yeah. We get Janet who, as you say, she's repeatedly doing the wrong thing, like smoking and speaking English. (laughs) (laughs) Singing pop hits. And she's constantly apologising. To the narrator. Sorry, sorry, please don't dog me. And, yeah, and, and, and he, he's and her life is complete tragedy. It's yeah, it's, but she really needs this job. Being trapped in the situation that they're in, she seems completely reasonable. <laughs> and then she ends up being kicked out, and I think she's replaced by somebody who he is going to kick him out. He's probably going to kick him out, but also how boring because the ne- the next person yeah, is really Miss Perfect. Yeah. I find it quite interesting because to start with you think, oh, is this going to be a love story? You know, these man and woman's locked up in the cave together day in, day out. Mm. But then he makes that very clear that she's out of the question. But he is, he's quite chivalrous because he does, he does keep defending her until his own position is threatened. That's right. And I don't think we'll ever be able to portray exactly what it was like to read this book It is very, very funny. And in George Saunders, doing his George Saunders voice, Mm. it makes it all the more funny. But at one point, there is Marty who runs the employees only shop. And he's dictating a letter to his son who's in boarding school. And he's saying, excel, be excellent, do what they ask. But but when, when George Saunders says it, he's saying it in some sort of... I, I don't know what the accent is like. You know, in your own private mind, think what you like. Only do as they ask. So they like you. And in this way, you will succeed. Um, it sounds nothing like but what I, I think just it's, described. Yeah, but it's, it's described that he's shrieking in the text. And it's like, I don't want to put the pressure on, son. I don't want to put the pressure on, son. I know you get enough pressure with school being so hard and all and and even having to make your own book covers because of our money crunch so i don't want to put on extra pressure by saying the family honor is at stake but guess what pal it is you're it kid (laughs) and it's just completely dismal and uh, he's petrified that he's going to lose his job they're all going to lose their jobs and it's sort of it's a beautiful moment where well, I thought it was a beautiful moment where the narrator goes out with Nordstrom, he's one of the boss people, yeah. um, in the middle of this conversation. So it's just a moment where he notices some a white fluffy thing flows, floats down through the air and lands on the hairs of his arm and plucks it off. It does happen when you're talking to someone, you think, oh yeah, what's that? 
Yeah. No, it's just an odd aside. I think writing is beautiful. Yeah. Nordstrom, of course, is horrible. You know, he's absolute. He demands absolute honesty when he is completely, so horribly dishonest. You know, and and he wants, of course, the narrator to side with, with him about getting rid of Janet. Yes, it's his mission. Yeah, and he says to him, "Do you know how hard it is to fire a girl? Not to mention a gal, not to mention an old gal, not to mention an old gal with so many years of service." under her ancient withered belt. And I would just say, she's 50. And it did make you want to say, oh, fuck off. Uh, because there's quite a few references to people's ages. And it gets all a bit Elder Huxley, Brave New World, I think, where anybody over breeding hot, sexy age is yeah. just not to be tolerated. Uh, well, I guess it's because the narrator is quite often, a, um, I mean, presumably a young man in this case. And in the Sea Oak, he's a young man. And what, what, what did you think of the exchange between Janet and her son, Bradley, the drug addict who turns up at work? Well, it's heartbreaking, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, he barges into the cave, which for a start is totally against the rules, talking English and asks for money from her. He's obviously in rehab, so she's saying, what have you done? What have, you done? have you been kicked out? And I think he has been kicked out for wanted to have a party with a TV in my room. So he's obviously stolen the TV, come to her for money. And, of course, she gives him the benefit of the doubt and, obviously, doesn't go well. It's awful, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then the grandmother, the the other tragic part of Janet's life, her mother (laughs) has to be turned over in the bed all the time because she stands up, her lungs fill up with blood, which is such a horrible image. Yes. (laughs) Poor Janet has got all... I don't know why I'm laughing, it's awful. So and, and but that's the thing about it. We're yeah, all laughing. And it's so it's awful. So you're reading and it's so deadpan and yeah. you read along accepting, accepting, blah, 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 and you think, What? What did you just say? <laughs> yeah, definitely. And then the other story that we're gonna talk about is Sea Oak. And Sea Oak is a place where the narrator yeah. is a male stripper at joysticks. <laughs> what else is it gonna be called? <laughs> And he financially supports his sister, Min, and his cousin, Jade. They all live together with ever-suffering but optimistic Aunt Bernie, who works at Drug Town. She dies of fright from home intruders, then escapes her grave, returning to the family as an angry, swearing woman with a plan to get them out of Sea Oak. Sorry, I love the way Sea Oak sounds like a lovely 1930s bungalow or something. <laughs> it's just, but it's this horrible estate somewhere. Projects. I can just see that on a beachfront yeah, co- cottage with a little, you know, plaque outside the front door, hand-carved, of yeah. course. But you had a quote from there to give us a sense of... Oh, yeah. I'm not doing an accent. Actually, I, I had this kind of mad idea that perhaps this is the same narrator as the one in Pastoralia, but younger. Tragic, oh, I like that idea. Tragic figures with yeah. really bad jobs and just yeah. tr- they're just trying to do their best for their families. But anyway, so Sea Oak, the narrator who works in this terrible restaurant called Joysticks, as you said, it's a kind of theme restaurant for ladies where all the waiters basically strip off to their underwear and they have to do things like bend down so the ladies can see their bum cracks when they pick coins up off the floor. So I'm just going to read a little section of this for a little bit of flavour and scene setting. So Joysticks reopens on Friday. It's a madhouse. They've got the fog on 
A bridge club offers me 15 bucks to oil wrestle Mel Turner. So I oil wrestle Mel Turner. They offer me 20 bucks to feed them chicken wings from my hand. So I feed them chicken wings from my hand. The afternoon flies by, then the evening. At nine, the bridge club leaves and I get a sorority. They sing intelligent, nasty songs and grope my simulator and say they'll never be able to look their boyfriend's meagre genitalia in the eye again. Then Mr. Friend comes over and says, phone, it's Min. She sounds crazy. Four times in a row, she shrieks, get home. When I tell her, calm down, she hangs up. I call back and no one answers. No biggie. Min's prone to panic. Probably one of the babies is pukey. Luckily, I'm on flex time. I'll be back, I say to Mr. Friend. I look forward to it, he says. I jog across the marsh and through FedEx. Up on the hill, there's a light from the last remaining farm. Sometimes we take the boys to the adjacent car wash to look at the cow. Tonight, however, the cow is elsewhere. Tell me, what, what is it about that passage? Oh, everything. <laughs> so one remaining farm has got one cow, but yeah. the cow's not even there. So it's just little snippets like that. And the, yeah. the, the, the kind of grim awfulness of his routine, that he, you know, his job, which he realises, but gets on with it. Yeah, they, it's, a, it's a sort of suffering lot, isn't it? I mean, his his situation's so awful that he's stealing toilet paper from work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then they get squashed in his briefcase, so yeah. they don't work that well when he gets them home, but still. <laughs> in fact, George Saunders does talk about that with regards to Tolstoy, who he claims is telling you this sort of culmination of facts but with every little detail such that it becomes like fiction but I know I got that sense in his in the in this story in this book of all these tiny details that exist in life that a writer will pick up on that a painter will pick up on that if we add them all up they make up yeah life and uh I found it very difficult not to be judgy as well, well, particularly in this story, because they're watching TV with their children. They're watching stuff like yeah. How My Child Died Violently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's awful, funny. awful shows. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in that section then, when he talks about this group of, the sorority group that comes in and starts singing nasty, intelligent songs, you can, you can just see them, can't you? It's kind of, we all know those people. And they also have a poor Aunt Bernie who dies, you know, she she's so optimistic and yet she's had no dates, no kids, yeah. no life of her own. She's looked after her grandfather until he died and then he left the house to somebody else. So it's another woman they've never heard of. Yeah. So she's never ever gotten a break and at one point when there's a shooting on their estate she says, oh, you know, we should all be thankful. At least we've got a home, and at least none of the bullets actually hit nobody. And uh, there's a toy duck that gets a bullet in its, that breaks its beak. And, yeah. and Aunt Bernie says, yeah, yeah well, it looks like a real duck now because some of them don't have perfect beaks. It's just ridiculous. But she does say at the end, which I think is really interesting... You know, she comes back and she's ordering them about because she's like, you know, this is shit. Life is shit here. And she sorts out how they're going to put in an effort so the narrator has to show his dick at, yeah. <laughs> at work all the time uh, to the customers. 
and one of the women has to learn how to cook and the other one has to go and study or get a job or whatever but you get the impression they're going to improve their lot just the most minimal step but they are going to improve it but and um, it's just so surreal so you know she dies of fright when the burglar comes into the house and, mm. and there's a whole discussion about the coffin they can afford and they have this awful funeral and then the phone call from the vicar is terribly embarrassed because the grave is empty mm. it's only her little shoes are left there <laughs> so it's it's great you know shock and horror that the, the grave has been robbed and then she turns up sitting in the their living room yeah smelling a bit odd yeah and bits start falling off her so it's but do you think do you think that when she's like that and she's swearing at everybody and she's really angry and yeah. she says you know don't tell anybody that that i'm here or you'll die and they'll die because you know i've got these magic powerful, powers yeah. she now. blows up the microwave <laughs> <laughs> and when she's telling them what to do and they say you know i thought you were nicer before why can't you be like the old aunt bernie and she says i'm still nice and it's just this one little moment that I think, okay, that's interesting. Is she still nice? Do you think that's the right thing to do? You know, a bit like Marty saying to his son, you know, just do whatever they say. Just make sure they like you. Make sure that you're accepted. That's mm. the way to get ahead in life. But it's kind of true. Yeah, she's kicking them up the arse to get out of there, which when you read it, you kind of think, well, maybe that is what they want. And yeah. She's, she's spotted that. That's true, but I also think that, you know, in the, in the story The Falls, Morse is living in his embarrassingly small rental house, which, you know, nevertheless is the best that he can do, and he knew he should be grateful, although at times he wasn't a bit grateful. At other times he was quite pleased with the crooked little blue shack covering in peeling lead paint, <laughs> you know, so quite noxious, and felt great pity for the poor stiffs renting hazardous shitholes even smaller than his hazardous shithole and there is a bit of that you know I, I thought no matter what Aunt Bernie pushes these young people to do it's only going to be a lesser shit version than yeah. the shit version that they're living in yeah and his next job is, next job is probably going to be in a cave in Pastoralia <laughs> <laughs> but maybe that's a step up and, and it all just completely comes around but it also drew, I mean, in fact, all of the stories drew, for me, that picture of false hope. In fact, my studio is in an ex-corporate environment in, in the middle of London, and mm. it's still got slogans on the walls. Oh, you know how <laughs> companies do that? I just think, oh my God, I hate that just so much. If I read any more of this, I'm going to bleed out my eyeballs, but... I can't even remember what it says. Something like, you know, hey, developing brighter futures. And it's in this big blue bubble, but it's sort of a dirty, dull grey blue. You're doomed. <laughs> You're doomed. But did you read the second story? I'm sorry, what should... was the second story? Oh, it's called Winky. Yes. You know, he goes to this kind of meeting. It's like a, almost like a cult. It reminded me of one of those corporate things. But yeah, say what you're going to say about Winky. Sidetrack. Kind of well, not really, like, because in today's the... going to be your best day. Yeah, gonna... you're going to start winning. Yeah, <laughs> <Just> like... <laughs> that was such a sort of eighties thing. I remember that. 
But it's the same now, but in a different language. I remember at my kids' school, there was a big slogan on the on the wall, and they, at school age, said, you know, something like, <laughs> you're only a step away from living your dream or some rubbish. And they said, yeah, but that's only people whose lives are facilitated <laughs> to live that dream. And... Uh, I thought, wow, school-aged children, even you see through that, you have a disillusioning future ahead of you. (laughs) It's pretty dark. Yeah. Every school has to have a motto like that. But it's like there's all these sort of categorisations in terms of winner, loser. The narrator in Sea Oak, he's rated as well. They've got categories, haven't they? Yeah. So the categories are knockout, honey pie, adequate, or stinker. (laughs) He's somewhere between honey pie and adequate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in Winky, it's the, it's the same thing, where they have people wearing mass-produced paper hats and the white hats were beginning to begin and the pink hats were moving ahead and beginning. The green hats were very firmly beginning and all the way up to the gold hats who had mastered living, in inverted commas, <laughs> and were standing in a group around the snack table, whispering and conferring and elbowing one another when someone in a lesser hat walked by. It's just like every day in a playground, isn't it? Yeah. It's kind of a grandiose version of that. We're all a bit terrifying. Oh, no. I think we are. Do you think that's a message? Maybe it is a message of the whole book, that we're all somewhere in there. Or we are if if we get pushed enough or squeezed into a tight corner enough. Or or put in a cave. (laughs) Or a very small apartment. It's like the idea of being sort of all squished into something called, I don't know, humanity, society. And I am making a sneaky segue here to your practice. You have these images that you've painted of people on islands, all squashed together. Well, yeah. The little humanity, the little (laughs) island of humanity. Yeah, those paintings were done, actually, I'm not sure what date, but quite a long time ago, sort of. 15, 20 years ago, and there are two of them. They're quite large, and one is called East Wind and one is called West Wind. So the idea was it's just a very small speck of land in the middle of the sea full of people. And I found it very hard to read their faces, and it did remind me of the book of, I don't, I don't know what to make of this. Is the world okay? Is the world yeah. not okay? Do I need to think of the world being okay or yeah. not okay? Maybe the world is just complicated... I really enjoy the fact that people will bring their own interpretation to paintings, especially the secretive paintings. So in a way, I want to leave it up to you, mm. whether the world is okay, or whether it's the end of the world, and this is the only little speck left in the ocean, and they're all huddled on there. But it wasn't a horrific sort of image I wanted to make. No, not at all. I wanted to leave yeah. it open. I mean, in some way, so me bringing my interpretation to those paintings, because that's the only lens through which I can look, is almost people being more bewildered than anything. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) What the hell are you doing here? (laughs) Puzzled. Yeah. No, I like that. So let's have a slightly proper um, introduction to your practice. So you're predominantly a figurative painter, and I say predominantly a figurative painter because you have stepped recently into Mm. sculpture. Anyway, the figurative painting is mainly of individuals, groups, and natural beings. You've been shortlisted and awarded across a number of prestigious painting prizes, including the National Portrait Gallery's Portrait Award and the Threadneedle, so well done there. So what's what's the story behind stories in your work? 
so stories more recently the the work that I've made has been in response to texts that I've been given or been asked to respond to so mm. or or have found myself so recently um I did a project at Salisbury Arts Centre Blood Wedding which is the Federico Garcia Lorca play and I read everything that I could get my hands on by Lorca and about Lorca and again the text the play is slightly veering towards magical surrealism, magical realism. Um, It's quite dark, poetic. Very dark. Very dark. (laughs) Very beautiful. Yes. Very visual. And it's it's a very rich nourishment for a a painter to be Mm. given something like that, because you can't read it without pictures popping up behind your eyes, and once they've popped up, they need to be painted. Oh, I like that idea. Once they've popped up, they need to be painted. Yeah, you need to get them down. Uh, another project recently was at the Foundling Museum in London. The Foundling Museum has this incredible archive for going back to when it was founded in 1748, 1750, something like that. But they were meticulous with their recording of the children and everything, like the shoes that were bought. Uh, did you see the ribbons when you were there? They are actually heartbreaking. kept somewhere else because they're really fragile. Yeah. But just to say that the ribbons are mothers who've left their children there. So they gave them ribbons and a lot of them have written, I'm going to come and collect you. And of course a lot of children were not collected. Children were left for different reasons over the years of the, mm. the history of the hospital. But you know, I mean, it's not just ribbons. It's sometimes uh, just a snippet taken off a dress mm. of the mother, uh, which is kept with the record of the baby when it was admitted. And so that collection of textiles is now one of the best resources for working class fabrics mm. from the 18th century, because museums are full of like their smart dresses and grand ladies' ball gowns and things. But actually, what working people were wearing is less preserved. That That's also another one of those scenarios of a sort of better shithole, isn't it? Because the orphanage that they went to was probably an awful orphanage, but actually the mortality rate was better amongst those children than it was outside of the orphanage. Absolutely. And they were fed educated, hmm. which was not normal, and they had access to medicine, and they were apprenticed when they mm. got to the age to leave. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the, the response when you start talking about foundling hospital is often, oh dear, the poor babies. But mm. actually it was set up to improve the life of the mothers. The idea was that if you took away this, this baby, this, this one mistake that you've made, then you'll be able to continue on your life in the path of righteousness and will take care of this embarrassment. Oh, I didn't realise that. Yeah. Yes, anyway, again, very rich, very rich source of material for painting. Yeah. Because I started working with the archive and looking at the archive and I just, I ended up finding it overwhelming. How do you make work about this stuff? It's like, you know, people at their darkest hour in their, mm. in their worst moment of need. So I did a little shimmy and ended up making work about broadside ballads, which were tabloids of their day, political, rude, songs and bits of gossip and a lot of them were very funny. So the project that I ended up making for the Foundling Museum was based on these texts. So you've worked, you've worked with, a bit with archives, haven't you? Because you also did the Helston Museum in Cornwall? Yes, is it? Where so you yes I live in Helston and my studio is based at Karst, okay. which is right next to the museum. That was the beginning of well, my first 
project working with archives. And when I was offered that, I thought, oh, that's not me. (laughs) How do you do this? So it was a huge privilege to be let loose in the archive of this rather lovely small museum. So Helston's a small town and the museum is full of everything to do with the history of that small town, but nothing, there's nothing glamorous there. There's no amazing object that people come from miles to see, because if there was, it would end up in Truro Museum up the line or in the British mm. Museum. But you it, were saying that the, the objects themselves didn't really do it for you because, of course, they've, they're already giving you an image. Yeah, so you did of, go to the archives there as well. Yeah. Through the process of reading, the image comes to mind and then the work almost makes itself it becomes easy and becomes obvious so i was looking at things um like there's a you sound like a really dark person so there's a list of it is very dark list of references uh, (laughs) yeah a list of executions in cornwall between Mm. 1775 and 1882 uh and it's the name of the person executed their age and the crime that they committed you know, it's quite stark. Yeah, it is. And I kind of resisted it because I thought this is this is not something to make a painting about. But as an object, it stayed with me, and I did end up making this quite large painting where figures are all there committing the crimes, but they're in silhouette. They are kind of beyond time and place. But then, at some point, oh, I think it was in the summer, and all you know, Cornwall, Maine, June, beautiful, and then there was honeysuckle everywhere. And I just noticed this one day and I thought, this is what I need on this painting. Mm. So all these, this horrible kind of mass of stick figures committing their crimes is partly obscured by the veil of honeysuckle, which in some way made sense to me because it seems how we view history. It's kind of slightly obscured. We can see some bits, we don't get the whole picture. It's slightly prettified and sweetened. Yeah, so... That's the story of that painting, which is now called Cattle Crimes in Cornwall, Partially Obscured by Honeysuckles. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Strange title. Well, you've got a lot of those paintings which have a lot of people in them. For instance, I'm thinking of the ones with lots and lots of faces. So one of them is actually called Crowd, but one of them is a reference to lineage and... Oh, ancestors uh, and descendants. Yeah, like seas of indistinguishable faces and then you've got shoals with you know lots and lots of fishes around and paradise island with lots and lots of monkeys and this sort of thing of many worlds of all these people or animals or fish together yeah i think there is one thread to my work which is this idea of a repeated motif which i have used quite often i think to look at visually it's quite enticing because you're drawn in initially thinking oh it's just a mass of identical images but then you realise it's not, so it draws you in. And it's also, I find them quite soothing to paint, making individuals slightly different. Yeah, because that's one of the things that I felt was a fundamental difference between your work and the book. Or maybe I found it difficult to find in the book. There is a sense of hope in your work, in the way that it's just really beautifully painted. Thank Um, you. And then fluidity and movement, of course, in the way that you paint and the way that there's so many images with water. Everything's very fluid, very much about the process of painting, I suppose, as well as the image of painting. An easy answer would be to say that when I first started painting, I just used watercolour. 
And I love watercolour and I was kind of adamant that I didn't need oil paint, but of course that changed. So I don't know if there's some kind of hangover from that kind of just pushing the stuff around, but I do, you know, I love paint. I, I, I love the stuffness of it, mm. the way you can push and pull and scrape. Yeah, it re- really shows uh, in, in the work. I mean, water is a theme. For instance, you know, so far as, you know, you've got lots of partly submerged individuals. Some of them are horrific. Not horrifically painted, but Which one is of them horrific is like, painted. it's of somebody in boiling water. It's, is it called boiled? Uh, it's um, called boiled, yes. So it started, started one called frozen, and they are just single figures, mostly submerged, just a head sticking yeah. out of the water. So what you would see is a, a calm head. Some of them are surrounded by jellyfish, some yeah. of them are surrounded by... Bait. So they started yeah. having sort of foodie titles. They had jellied, yeah. boiled, frozen... I can't remember what else. <laughs> this is quite strange, but that wasn't the idea. It's just this idea of what, what you see above and what's going on below. It, it did. They do feel like the glass half empty, the glass half full kind of thing, because I'm not sure if the water's going to rise and rise and rise yeah. and then they'll be drowned, or if it's receding or... They're going to start swimming? There's, a, well, there's one that's called a long-distance swimmer, which is about to be shown in Plymouth. Okay. And you just see his little head, but it, he's been swimming for so long that his whole body is encrusted with muscles. And sea creatures. <laughs> but going back to the book, I think something yeah. that I think kind of relates to my paintings is the deadpan nature of it. With the paintings, I want quite often to kind of create a, a beautiful-looking image. So from across a room, you think... Oh, that's nice. What a lovely painting. Mm. And then as you come closer, you think, oh, what? You get this, this kind of double take of what's going on here, not what I was expecting. You get a kind of slap. Yeah. Um, which I think is something that happens in George Saunders. Well, like we were doing before, we yeah. were laughing about that horrific thing of, you know, how <laughs> so, my child might die or what, yeah, whatever. No, you can't say that. <laughs> of this podcast I would normally ask you about you know where can we see your work coming up but I thought it might be nice to bring that in much earlier and talk about the work that you've just had at Matt's Gallery and the work that is currently at Matt's Gallery which is an exhibition called The Borough which finishes in April? April 16th. April 16th. just opened. Okay, perfect. So you've got plenty of time Mm -hmm. to go and see it. So you've got a two-part exhibition, which is a really nice way to start talking about the work that you're doing right now, which has been very much affected by lockdown, obviously, and you've ventured into sculpture. So a lot of new unsureness and also... A repetition of some of, or not repetition, the use of some of these motifs, which we can talk about. So the first one was Dead Man's Fingers. Do you want to perhaps introduce what that exhibition was about? So Dead Man's Fingers started lockdown number one, 2020. So I'd just come back from a residency in Mexico, straight into lockdown. And I mean, it feels like a long time ago now, but it was really scary time. Cornwall was beautiful because it was amazing weather and we could get to the studio but in some ways I didn't know what to paint because the world was fairly grim and painting people didn't feel right and I ended up making these quite large imagined paintings of rocks encrusted with coral and I now, looking at them as a group, I sort of think they're somewhere between still lives and scientific illustrations on a grand scale 
but they're totally made up. Any mm. coral expert would look at them and throw up their hands in horror. And you've been scuba diving, have you? No, or I haven't been scuba diving, but... Snorkelling. I grew up in Malaysia, so I, yeah. we did snorkelling a lot as a child, so maybe there's some kind of muscle memory there. Of I've, I've actually coral. done snorkelling on the Great Barrier Reef. Wow. And so you would know from your experience, I assume, that you uh, the colours yeah. amongst real coral in the water, in the seawater, not in a museum, are just weird and extraordinary yeah and you, everything goes and yeah you can't choose the wrong color because it will be there somewhere yeah it's so beautiful but it's what for me the experience was isn't this gorgeous don't touch anything i really shouldn't be here and i wonder if there's a shark nearby <laughs> so it wasn't it wasn't a hugely pleasant experience well there is a sort of slight darkness to the paintings as well because there, there are no fish yeah. and there are definitely no people yeah. But there are little vestiges of humanity. One of the paintings has got a few teeth scattered in the sand and another one has got some finger bones. So you get this idea that there are people or there were people or then there are no longer people. That is really strange. And also that just that idea of being underwater. And um, I remember having a conversation with the painter Alice Brown and she talked about being a kid and going into caves and then being all falsely lit with like fluoro lighting mm. and her thinking that's the colour of caves <laughs> <Well>. <laughs> and your coral paintings reminded me of that straight away I thought you know they're all these hyper colours yeah. and um, they're not sort of uh, shrouded in seawater which creates a sort of film and also you're looking at them through you know, snorkeling goggles, yeah. Whereas your paintings, that you know, they're very clear as if they could have yeah. been rendered images in New Scientist or something like that. Yeah, um, they're very sharp. I mean, it's yeah. totally illogical because I was working on these big canvases with little tiny brushes and you know, after a while I think, what on earth am I doing? It's <laughs> got, you know, nose to the canvas, you yeah. tiny brush. You know. But that's all presented like an underwater world that was all presented because there's nine paintings on the walls and then a, a myriad of sculptures hanging from the ceiling, although the sculptures are one piece of work, also called Dead Man's Fingers, is that right? Yeah. And uh, the sculptures are made of a collection of detritus from the sea and everyday objects like floating, I think you say boys here, I would say buoys in... Really? Australia. Uh, rubber gloves, shells, balloons, all hanging from ropes and they cast sort of ghostly shadows on the concrete floor at Matt's gallery. I, I, I took a few photos actually lying on the floor looking up. At so the did I. Sculpture, <laughs> yeah. It's compulsory. <laughs> Absolutely. But you um, took a photo of your dog. <gasps> no, this is, you know, you can't, you really can't say this to many artists, but my dog hugely approved of your so sculpture. So she she's she does accompany me to quite a lot of exhibitions, and she's all for sculpture and film. She's quite terrified of things in the sky, so paragliders yeah. are absolutely terrifying. Fair quivering, enough. quivering. Yeah, I, can, I can relate to that. <laughs> a large bat flying people. But that thing of being underneath something. She was quite frightened when she went into the space. Mm -hmm. It was very much what the exhibition for me was like, that you were submerged, you yes. were underwater, you were in this whole COVID lockdown trapped experience. Yeah. Although it's quite beautiful. Yeah. 
Look at you being very hopeful, finding all that beauty somewhere in all that experience. Yeah, I was quite pleased that um, a lot of people commented that it was quite creepy and quite Mm. dark because I didn't want it to be too beautiful. But I still feel slightly uncomfortable calling them sculptures because I think you have to be a sculptor to make sculptures. Mm. And for me, they're almost an extension of, you know, that thing. Everyone who walks along a beach ends up picking something up. Yeah. And it's like... It's like I've been doing that and got carried away and then hung them all on the gallery ceiling. And also, it's as if the paintings have come to life, have kind of crept out from the walls and become these three-dimensional embodiments of the objects in the paintings. They're fixed onto the ceiling on these wooden blocks where, because of the separation between them, I got a sense that it was like... A, sort of like particles, I suppose, that come together and separate... Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think they had to work as a mass, and I had them hanging in the studio from these steel girders, mm. and because the space was smaller, they were much closer together, and it felt much more claustrophobic. But they are like another group, you know, like your your thing of returning to lots of groups of people, or animals, yes. or bugs, or fishes, yeah. etc., because, you know, coral live in colonies... But in that exhibition, there was also the sort of segue to the next exhibition, which is a painting called Drowned Boy. And I read that painting in the exhibition Dead Man's Fingers as a question mark, because I thought, is this a reference to all the things you might find under the sea? Or is this a biographical reference? It was included in the Dead Man's Fingers show, but it's actually the first work from the borough and it sort of acts as a, a bridge between the two bodies of work. So the borough, the exhibition that's on now, is all based on a poem by George Crabbe called Peter Grimes. And Peter Grimes is one section of this long poem George Crabbe wrote in 1810, which is called The Borough. And Peter Grimes, people often know the opera or have heard of Benjamin Britten's opera, same name. Actually, E.M. Forster wrote about George Crabbe in 1941, and so Benjamin Britten became aware of him, and with his librettist, Montague Slater, they wrote the opera together. The poem itself, Peter Grimes, describes a fisherman in this fictional town, which is based on Aldborough in Suffolk, and the fisherman is cruel murderer, child abuser, basically, and a thief, uh, and the story is that he goes to London and gets himself an apprentice, and the first apprentice dies uh, in mysterious circumstances, so he gets another one, this one also dies, and the people in the town obviously know what's going on and don't really intervene, and then the third apprentice, everyone's appalled because he's described as coming along in a beautiful blue woolen hat, and the ladies in the town say, oh no, this is some gentle, noble sinner's son, which is the title of one of the paintings, um, and of course he dies as well. But the moral is that Peter Grimes then dies in agony, being haunted by the ghosts of all these um, people that he's murdered. And Reading the original George Crabbe, again, it's so visual, quite dark. And you talk in a discussion with Tim Dixon from Matt's Gallery, you talk about the bystander effect and yeah. communal apathy. Yeah, which goes on and on. Which and is I, I, very much today. Yes, absolutely. 
you know, that makes the whole story even darker because everyone knows this is going on. They, you know, they, they can hear the, these apprentice boys being beaten and crying and they can see them starving. One of the apprentices climbs a mast and then falls into the hatch where the fish are kept. The townspeople just say, oh, well, if you've got boys that climb, then keep the hatch shut. Mm. It's actually an amazing Sidney Nolan painting of Peter Grimes' apprentice. Oh, yeah. It's true that they all know what's going on and choose to ignore it, but they're quite sympathetic to him in a funny way in the end. Yeah, because he's he's suffering. Yeah, he's suffering at his in his deathbed uh, with these visions, and they seem to be a bit nice about it. Nice is probably too big a word. Yeah, they care for him. Yeah, which is quite strange, really, isn't it? No, is it, no that... sympathy for the um, poor apprentice boys. But I suppose it's that way that when people die, they become, you know, almost angels. Of... <laughs> Peter Grimes is angel. That's the next painting. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So yeah, so the exhibition includes a lot of paintings of young boys. Actually, so some of them are kind of imagined portraits. You've got those paintings of the boys together, surrounded in this sort of red... Oh, the red one. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you get a sense that they're doomed. And of course, they don't ever meet each other in the palm, but they do in the paintings. And going back to the, the crossover painting that we were talking about, the drowned boy, I mean, it's not even recognisable as a boy, but I just imagine this figure rising up out of the sea to torment Peter Grimes. What's the painting that's in the borough, the exhibition, with the ghost? Um, So that painting is called Again They Come, and it's quite big, actually. It's three metres. I had to buy myself a special ladder to to jump to the top of it. And Again They Come are Peter Grimes' dying words. So he's seeing these visions of these ghosts. Yeah, my idea was it was huge, larger-than-life, terrifying, a little bit like the medieval fresco church paintings where Mm -hmm. they had quite primitive visions of hell that people who couldn't read would still come to church and see... You're going to believe everything. ...what was before them if they didn't. Because you can almost hear the booming, commanding voice with that painting. Oh, good. Partly, yeah, because of the size of it. Well, hopefully he's got something of a cheeky boy about him saying... (laughs) You're stuffed now, mate. Mm. As well, in the paintings that you've done that depict these sort of archival, you know, poetry written in, I I think it was written in about 18, early 1800s. Yeah, 1810. Okay. There's something about that that is at one with, but also at odds with uh, the book in a way because the book gives you this sense of, you know, this is what America's like now. Oh, God, it's all despair, and, you know, people are like this, and other people are like that, and etc. But it's always been like that, you know. I mean, that's what your paintings are showing us, that you can go into the archives in Cornwall and find, I can't remember, Mary somebody or other, who's escaped from her charge. She's called Anne Medlin, the absconded apprentice. Going back to apprentices. Well, yeah, it's <laughs> a very good connection. Uh, as well as these, you know, crowds, crowds of people, and I guess it's very easy to say, you know, there's something Hieronymus Bosch about it. But are there any other painters or artists that you see are, have been a big influence for you? Oh, um, Goya. Yeah, of course. Go- Goya is God, but um, Bosch, Bruegel. 
those are the, the three the three main ones I would say but yeah. uh, when I was at art school um, possibly because my mother is German I was very into German expressionist like sort of I, could, I almost felt I could claim them as my own because yeah. I, I love yeah. the work um, yeah anybody in particular or or just the the whole, that whole sort of group well to start with um, people like Eric Heckel and Kirchner but then, of course, George Gross and Otto Dix, amazing, amazing work, satirical, and actually George Gross could almost see him illustrating George Saunders if they yes. met in <laughs> parallel <laughs> universe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That could work. But Goya is, he is the one. The one. Paintings and drawings? or, or Oh, and the, the etchings, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The etchings are just absolutely exquisite. Coming back to the Foundling Museum, there's one Goya that's, um, I can't remember the title of it, but something like Oh Mother, and, you know, the woman's body being carried, and just completely everything in that one small image. Mm. And uh, are you much of a reader? Is there anything on your bookshelf that you can remember? <laughs> <laughs> now you're asking. Uh, not so much a bookshelf, but I've got a sort of leaning tower of Pisa next to the bed. Same. I don't read as much as I used to, but yeah, I love reading. I've just caught up with the rest of the world and read the Poisonwood Bible. Okay. And I oh, I really liked a small book, Train Dreams by Kevin Johnson. And I'm also reading, partly rereading Gogol's short stories. That's a nice little yeah. uh, coincidence. Well, at this point, I'm going to say thank you, Nicola Bealing, for being on Art Fictions today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Good. Good. Thank you, listeners, and also thanks to today's guest, Nicola Bealing. Remember, you can see her solo show, The Borough, at Matt's Gallery in London till 16th of April. And it's accompanied by Carolyn Thompson's Vague Poetics. So double the value of your trip. As always, I'd love to hear from you by email artfictionspodcast at gmail.com. Check out our Instagram, artfictionspodcast. Then finally, to credits. Art Fictions was recorded by Andy Armashar and an unedited filmed version can be viewed on YouTube at Cubit Community Radio. For this abridged podcast, the music was written and performed by Griffin Knight, while award-winning animator Joanna Quinn of Beryl Productions created our Jolly logo. Happy listening, reading, seeing and making. Until next time. I'll think of all the clever things when I'm on the train going home. (laughs) Was that all right? Yeah, yeah, it was good. So what do you do now when you go back to the studio now that that's, it's exhausting, isn't it? A great big exhibition, two great big exhibitions in a row. Yeah. And then you go back to the studio and... Um, I look around at all the wonderful empty space and twiddle my thumbs. Yeah. (laughs) There's always something to work on. Yeah. So is that finished now? Borough, Peter Grimes, there'll be something new next? Well, hopefully. Yeah. I haven't found it yet. Yeah. I'm kind of in that slightly anxious phase where you're waiting for the next thing to come along to yeah. dive into. Anxious but necessary. I'm, I'm yeah, I guess so. Yeah. It's just that when you're in the zone with painting, it's so lovely and delicious mm. to be there making work. When you haven't got that, it's... <laughs>